Part eleven of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Favre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter thirty two Coffee. The plant that produces coffee is called the coffee tree. This is in reality little more than a shrub, bearing some resemblance to a small pear tree in its rounded top and bushy branches. Its leaves are oval and shiny, its blossoms, which resemble those of the jasmine and have a sweet smell, are grouped in small bunches in the axils of the leaves. These blossoms are succeeded by berries, first red and then black, having the appearance of our cherries, but with very short stems and crowded close together. Their pulp is insipid and sweetish, enclosing two hard seeds, round on one side, flat on the other, and united by their flat sides. These seeds are the so-called coffee beans, which we use after roasting them in a sheet-iron cylinder revolving over the fire. In color they are halfway between white and green, but turn to a chestnut hue in roasting. The coffee tree can thrive only in very warm countries. It is indigenous to Abyssinia, where it grows abundantly, especially in the province of Kaffa, from which it seems to have taken its name. In the fifteenth century the coffee tree was introduced from Abyssinia to Arabia, and it is there that the plant has found a climate most favorable for the development of its peculiar properties. Indeed, the most highly prized coffee comes to us from the southern provinces of Arabia, especially from the neighborhood of Mocha. Then, said Marie, when we speak of a coffee of superior quality as Mocha, we give it the name of the town that furnishes the best. Precisely. Look at the map and you will find Mocha very near the southern end of Arabia, at the entrance to the Red Sea. It is in this corner of the earth, under a burning sun, that the most highly esteemed coffee ripens. The Dutch were the first Europeans to turn their attention to coffee. They introduced it into their East India colonies, notably Batavia, whence a few young trees were sent on to Amsterdam to be cultivated in hothouses, as the climate of Holland would by no means ensure the thriving of this warmth-loving shrub in the open air. One of these young trees was given to the botanical garden of Paris, where care was taken to multiply it under glass, and one of the plants thus obtained was given to Deslieu, who started for one of our colonies, Martinique, with his little coffee-tree rooted in a pot. Never, perhaps, has the prosperity of a country had so humble a beginning. This feeble coffee-plant, which a sunbeam might have dried up on the way, was to be for Martinique and the other Antilles the source of incalculable riches. During the journey, which was prolonged and made difficult by contrary winds, fresh water ran short, and the crew was put on the most meagre rations. Dislieu, like the others, had only one glass of water a day, just enough to keep him from dying of thirst. The young coffee-tree, however, needed frequent watering in the extremely hot climate. But how water it when thirst devours you and every drop of water is counted? Dislieu did not hesitate to devote his own scanty allowance to the needs of his charge, one day giving it the whole glass, and the next going shares with it preferring to suffer the most painful of privations in order to reach his destination with the young coffee-tree in good condition. And this satisfaction was not denied him. Today, Martinique, Guadalupe, Santo Domingo, and most of the other Antilles are covered with rich coffee plantations, all owing their origin to the feeble plant imported by Deslieu. That plucky traveller is a man to be admired, declared Jules, 
and every time I drink coffee I shall think of him and what he did. Nothing in our part of the world can compare in beauty with an orchard of coffee trees bearing simultaneously as they do, throughout most of the year, leaves of a luxurious green, white blossoms, and red berries, vegetation in those sun-favored regions knowing scarcely a moment's repose. Over the perfumed tops of the trees hover butterflies whose wings, as large as both hands, astonish one with the magnificence of their coloring. In the forks of the topmost branches the hummingbird, a living jewel, builds its nest of cotton, half the size of an apricot. On the bark of old tree trunks, great beetles shine with more radiant splendor than the precious metals. In an atmosphere laden with sweet odors, negroes carrying baskets on their arms go through the plantations from one coffee tree to another, carefully gathering the ripe berries one by one so as not to disturb those that are still green. Scarcely is this harvest gathered when other berries redden, and then still others, while fresh buds form and new blossoms open. The coffee berries, or cherries as they are called, are passed through a kind of mill which crushes and removes the pulp without touching the seeds. Then these are exposed to the sun. Every evening, to protect them from the dew, they are piled in a heap and covered with large leaves, to be spread out again the next morning. When the drying process is finished, they are winnowed, the spoiled seeds rejected, and the harvest is ready for export. After that, said Claire, the coffee only has to be roasted and ground, and it is ready for use. Does anyone know who was the first to use it? According to a tradition current in the East, the use of coffee goes back to a certain pious dervish, who, wishing to prolong his meditations through the night, invoked Mohammed and prayed to be delivered from the need of sleep. A pious dervish, did you say? Emile interposed. I don't know what a dervish is. It is the name given in Oriental regions to certain men who renounce the world and devote themselves to prayer and contemplation. And Mohammed? Mohammed is a celebrated character who about twelve centuries ago founded in Arabia a religion that has now spread over a great part of the world, especially in Asia and Africa. This religion is called Mohammedism, or Islamism, and Mohammed is often designated by the title of prophet. To return to the dervish, who wished not to sleep that he might have so much more time for prayer and meditation, he addressed his petition to Mohammed, and the prophet appeared to him in a dream, advising him to go in quest of a certain shepherd. This man told the dervish that his goats remained awake all night, leaping and capering like fools, after having browsed on the berries of a shrub that he pointed out to him. It was a coffee tree, covered with its red fruit. The dervish hastened to try on himself the singular virtue of these berries. That very evening he drank a strong infusion of them, and, lo and behold, sleep did not once come to interrupt his pious exercises all night long. Rejoiced at procuring wakefulness whenever he desired it, he shared his discovery with other dervishes, who in their turn became addicted to the sleep-banishing drink. The example of these holy persons was followed by doctors of law. But before long it was discovered that there were stimulating properties in this infusion used for dispelling sleep, whereon it began to find favor with those who had no desire to be kept awake, until finally the bean chanced upon by the goats came into general use throughout the East. I advise you not to yield a blind belief to this popular tradition, for in reality it is not known by whom or in what circumstances the properties of coffee were first discovered. One point only remains incontestable, 
and the story of the dervish brings it out well it is the property coffee possesses of keeping the mind active and driving away sleep coffee then really prevents one sleeping asked marie yes but not everyone feels this singular influence in the same degree there are some not affected by it at all and others of a delicate and nervous temperament who cannot close their eyes all night long if they happen to take coffee in the evening and how about taking it in the daytime in that case the same objection does not present itself there is even an advantage to having the mind fully active especially if one is engaged in mental work but for the most part coffee is a simple stimulant that favors digestion and excites new vigor long habit makes it for many a drink of prime necessity prepared from the green berry just as it comes from the country that produces it the infusion of coffee is a greenish liquid odorless and tart which acts powerfully on the nerves is that the way asked claire that the dervish taught by the capering goats took his first cup of coffee probably nothing but the ardent desire to combat sleep could have induced him to continue the dose for the drink prepared in this way is very far from being palatable the qualities that make us desire coffee especially its fragrant aroma are developed only by roasting hence this operation should be performed with a certain degree of care if insufficiently roasted the coffee beans remain green inside then they are hard to grind in the mill and give a greenish-yellow infusion with no aroma roasted too much they are reduced to charcoal on the outside then the infusion is very dark bitter tasting and without aroma coffee is roasted to a nicety when it gives out an agreeable odor and has taken on a dark chestnut color coffee should be ground fine so as to yield its soluble ingredients readily to the water and finally the infusion should never be boiled because then the aromatic principle is dissipated being carried away by the steam coffee allowed to boil would soon be nothing but a bitter liquid bereft of the qualities that give it its value the best temperature is the one that approaches the boiling point but never quite reaches it the high price of coffee has given rise to many attempts to substitute cheaper home-grown products for the precious berry it has become customary to roast chicory roots chickpeas and acorns to mix with the ground coffee the only resemblance to coffee possessed by these various substitutes lies in the burnt odor the chestnut color and the bitter taste with none of coffee's efficacious properties allured by the hope of gain the merchant may exalt in high-sounding terms of praise the virtues of these cheap substitutes but you may be sure he has never had any of them served at his own table they say marie remarked that coffee sold already ground is sometimes mixed with one of those worthless powders you speak of that is only too true this fraud can be avoided by buying the coffee beans either already roasted or green and in the latter case roasting them oneself chapter thirty three sugar coffee calls for sugar resumed uncle paul the next day who can tell me what sugar is made of all remained silent until emile rather hesitatingly ventured to say i have heard uncle that it is made of dead people's bones and who told you that you simple child oh a friend of mine replied emile in some confusion at this strange notion the falseness of which he now began to suspect without being able to explain it your friend said his uncle was making game of your credulity when he told you any such ridiculous story as that sugar has no lugubrious origin of that sort although there is a grain of truth in what your friend said 
to purify sugar and make it white as snow use is made of animals bones after they have been burnt to charcoal as i will explain to you presently but these bones as soon as they have played their part are thrown away and not the slightest trace of them is left in sugar as it comes to us it is probably this use of bones in the manufacture of sugar that has given rise to the singular idea you repeat after your friend then there isn't one of you who knows where sugar comes from but you do know at least many kinds of fruit that have a very sugary taste such as melons for example grapes figs and pears melons are so sweet put in claire one would think they were preserved in sugar very ripe pears too are just as sweet and so are grapes and figs if these various kinds of fruit have the sweet sugary taste to such a high degree it proves that they contain sugar in their juice and in their pulp and yet we don't sweeten them we eat them just as they are we do not sweeten them ourselves it is true but somebody does it for us and that somebody is the plant the tree that bears them with a few poor materials which the roots derive from the soil and with the drainage from the dunghill the plant an inimitable cook concocts a certain amount of sugar and stores it up in the fruit for our own delectation emile was inclined to believe rather against his will that sugar was made from dead people's bones but here we have quite a different explanation of the matter i tell him that the toothsome dainty really comes from certain filthy substances mixed with the soil under the form of manure but before becoming the exquisite seasoning of the peach fig and melon the sugary matter was nothing but foul refuse this ignoble origin is not peculiar to sugar everything offered us by vegetation is derived from a similar source everything even to the sumptuous coloring and the sweet perfume of flowers to effect this marvelous transformation man's skill would be powerless the plant alone is capable of such a miracle out of a few materials which the earth water and air supply it makes an infinite variety of substances having every sort of flavor and smell in fact all imaginable qualities for that reason i have called it the inimitable cook man then does not really manufacture the sugar it is the plant the plant alone that produces it and man's work is limited to gathering it where he finds it ready-made and separating it from the various substances accompanying it i have already mentioned several kinds of fruit as containing sugar the melon in particular often other parts of plants contain it too chew a stalk of wheat when it is still green or of reed cane or the first blade of young grass you will find they have a slightly sugary taste there is not a blade of grass in the meadow but has its stalk preserved in sugar in other plants it is the root that becomes the storehouse of saccharine matter couch grass the commonest weed in our fields has a very sweet root the enormous root of the beet is sweeter still being a veritable candy shop so much sugar does it contain you see how widely dispersed sugar is throughout the vegetable kingdom although few plants lend themselves to the industrial extraction of this precious substance because they contain so little of it two plants only incomparably richer than the rest furnish nearly all the sugar consumed the world over and they are the sugar-cane and the beetroot the sugar-cane is a large reed two or three meters high with smooth shiny stalks having a sweet juicy marrow the plant came originally from india and is now cultivated in all the warm countries of africa and america to get the sugar the stalks are cut when ripe stripped of their leaves 
made into bundles and then crushed in a kind of mill between two cylinders turning in opposite directions a short distance apart the juice thus obtained is sometimes called cane honey which shows you how sweet it is it is put into large kettles and boiled down to the consistency of syrup in the course of the process a little lime is added to clarify the syrup and separate the impurities from it when the evaporation has proceeded far enough the liquid still boiling is poured into cone-shaped earthen molds that is to say molds having the shape of a sugar-loaf these molds turned point downward have at this end a small hole that is kept stopped up with a straw plug as soon as they are full of syrup they are left to cool slowly little by little the syrup crystallizes and becomes a compact mass after which the straw plug is removed and the small amount of liquid that has not hardened escapes through the hole at the point drop by drop this first operation gives raw sugar commonly called brown or moist sugar its color is not yet pure white and there is something disagreeable about the taste to make it perfectly white and to free it from certain ingredients that mar the perfect quality of its flavor it undergoes a purifying process in factories called refineries in france sugar is obtained from the beet root an enormous root with white flesh cultivated in vast fields for the manufacture of sugar in several of our northern departments the beets i usually see in the field said marie have red flesh do they also contain sugar yes they contain some but less than the white beets besides their red coloring would add to the difficulty of obtaining perfectly white sugar so the white beets are preferred the roots are carefully washed and reduced to pulp under large graters worked by machinery finally this pulp is placed in woolen sacks and subjected to pressure the juice thus extracted is treated like that of the cane and yields a similar raw or brown sugar which must be refined in order to attain perfection the process of refining is based on a certain property of charcoal which you must learn before going farther let us take from the fireplace some very light coals well calcined and reduce them to coarse powder now let us mix this black powder with a little highly colored vinegar and strain the mixture through a piece of very fine linen or better still through filter paper placed in a funnel the linen and still more the paper will retain the charcoal to the smallest particle the vinegar alone passing through but what a singular change will have taken place the vinegar at first a dark reddish hue has become limpid showing hardly a trace of red as far as color is concerned it looks almost like water but it has lost none of its other properties its pungent odor and strong taste are the same as at the beginning only the color has disappeared this experiment teaches us something of great interest charcoal has the property of bleaching liquids by taking to itself the coloring matter contained in them this property is carried to its highest development in a charcoal made from the bones of animals and called for that reason animal charcoal or bone black filtered through this substance in powdered form vinegar and red wine become as colorless as water without losing any of their other properties a few words will tell you how this curious charcoal is made that takes the color out of liquid so easily throw a bone on the fire soon you will see it flame up and turn quite black if you waited too long what is now charcoal would be burnt up entirely and the bone in the end would become quite white but withdraw it before being wholly burnt up and it is black as common charcoal reduce this charred bone to powder and you will have real bone black well 
it is by means of half-burned bones bone black in fact that sugar is refined bones of all kinds of animals refuse from the slaughterhouse kitchen remnants carcasses found in sewers are all carefully gathered up and converted in kilns to bone black for the bleaching of sugar until it assumes the whiteness of snow then that said emile is what started my friend's jest sugar is not made of dead people's bones but bones turned into charcoal are used to whiten it yes his uncle agreed that undoubtedly accounts for your friend's odd notion if it were not for their being burned in a hot fire in the first place emile continued i should be disgusted to think of bones picked up anywhere being used in sugar refineries fire purifies them otherwise i should stop eating sugar banish all repugnance on that score my child these bones are so thoroughly calcined that not the slightest trace of their former impurity remains let me tell you how they are used the brown sugar be it from cane or beetroot is dissolved in hot water and the syrup thus obtained is mixed with the proper quantity of bone black which draws to itself the impurities that give raw sugar its yellowish color and unpleasant taste the mixture is then strained through thick woolen cloths which act as filters the charcoal remains above with all the impurities it has contracted while the syrup passes through as limpid as the water that gushes from a rock the sugary liquid is then boiled down and finely poured into cone-shaped moulds where it hardens into sugar loaves of irreproachable whiteness and flavour End of part 11